What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Drunk Turkey Show. Hope you guys like that little bit of an intro. Uh, if you're not aware, myself, I was on the uh, uh, J for Justice podcast earlier, and that's what we're talking about. We're answering some questions. I need to move us around because I'm getting confused. There we go. <laughs> hey, how's it going? How's it going? So, how's y'all's weekend? How's everybody doing? We'll start off with you, Big Blue. How was your weekend? It was good, man. It's good. I've been working all week. I'm I'm on my five day stretch again, so it was a tiring one. I went to a baby shower. I I had to participate in some of the games, so I got stuck trying to drink Gatorade out of a baby bottle, which is not easy. Not easy. I ended up having to just bite the tip of the nipple off and try to win the game, and I still lost. I came second place. So you you failed at shotgunning a bottle too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they cheated because they said we couldn't bite it, and something. They said, "All right, you can bite it." And I was like, "I don't know, I have bad teeth." They, they, they <laughs> <laughs> bad teeth. Uh, to answer your question, Angel, uh, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we definitely did. I mean, how was your weekend, my man? That is his real voice. That's a real. Wait, can you hear me? Yes. Well, I don't know what's you're, going you're, on, man. You are not muted, so if you're trying to pass gas, we can all hear you. Nah, like everything's frozen on my computer. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, well, I'm not. The, the intro is still going on in my side. Oh, okay. oh, geez, you might want to pull yourself out and then come back in. Yeah. There it is. Let's <laughs> <laughs> see what, what, what's happening. Man, today today's been a, a crappy morning. I'll tell you that much. Man. Wow, what happened, my man? I couldn't get. To sleep, man. I was trying to take a nap, trying to take a nap, and then the doorbell rang like four times today, bro. Four times. You need to disconnect it, man. And, That's and what three, I ti- three times it's, it's the neighbor. Oh, jeez. Wine sugar. She's like 79 and doesn't remember how to work her TV. So she comes over and asks if I can work her TV, like turn it on for her. Like she couldn't get the channels. And then, and then she's like, the AC's messed up. And and I look at it, she has it like an 82, right? And I'm still trying to fix the TV. So she's like, can you lower it down? It's, it's too hot in here, right? So I lower it down. I said, how low do you want it? I was like, I don't know. I don't like it cold either. Shoot. So I put it like at 80, right? From 82 to 80. It was yeah. hot in there. And then she's like, I'm in there for a second, still trying to fix the TV. And she's like, it's too cold. Turn it back up. I was like, you wanted it warm. I said, I can't get it. I just turned it back up to 82. And then, all right, your TV's fixed. I got to go. Have a good day. And then, uh, and then, like, not even an hour later, man, burning good to sleep. And sure, he's a doorbell again. Uh, I, I ran out of cigarettes and beer. You got any beer? I was like, I had a light turn, so I had no beer. Because last time she got too drunk and was like following all the neighbors. So I told her husband I wouldn't give her beer no more. Jeez. <laughs> Jeez. <clears throat> Uh, that's crazy, my man. Well, how was your weekend, Hyman? Hot. Was it? I can imagine. Did you very, go fishing? Hot. I did. I did. I did. I went with my nephews. My uh, one of my nephews, my dad, and, and my sister out there. I, oh, I didn't catch cool, anything. Man. You didn't catch anything? Damn. It must well, nothing big. nothing big. Nothing big. Nothing big. Mm-hmm. Well, I got to get back out there, man. I haven't been out there in a while. I need to get out there and... and, and see what i can grab uh, i've only gone to the creek that's right there or the, the little river that's by my attached to my neighborhood yeah but enough of all that let's get into the content and to why people are here watching um we have 
And so over the weekend, um, I got, I was alerted that there was a podcast that was out there uh, referencing the um, Idaho uh, incident, right? The, the It's called the King Road Killings. It's an ABC News podcast. There was five podcasts on there. Had like um, about 45 minutes to about 45 minutes each episode, right? And within all these five episodes, there's some stuff that I had never heard before. I mean, some really big stuff in there. And so I was like, man, that's interesting. And then I also um, was listening into another uh, interview. And there was more information that came out in that interview. And then I got sent uh, another video. And I know I'm being pretty big, but we'll go through it all. And there was some other information that I wasn't aware of. So we have a lot to go over tonight. But first things first, what I did want to do is go over the ABC podcast. I'm sure some of you guys may have listened to it or heard it, but there are some things in here that I found to be very interesting and we'll talk about it. Now, there is some music attached to it in certain parts. And so for copyright, I'm going to have to play some music over it. So let's go with. All right, let's let's play this thing. Everyone wanted to know who had targeted the victims. Kaylee Gonzalez, Madison Mogan, Zana Kernodal, and Ethan Chapin. And why? It was the story people were talking about. And I was the first network reporter on the ground. The hunt is on for a suspected killer following the horrifying homicides of four University of Idaho students at an off-campus apartment. Authorities now- That's me. I'm Kana Whitworth, a correspondent with ABC News. And I began covering this case the day after the murders were discovered. On my first trip to Idaho, I sat in my rental car right in front of that King Road house, and I did a Zoom call with Olivia Gonzalez, the older sister of Kaylee, one of the victims. Kaylee was set to graduate in December, so she was spending as much time as possible with her family near Coeur d'Alene before her move to Texas. Olivia told me that Kaylee had been home for a couple of weeks. She was helping her mom decorate for Christmas. She'd also bought her dream car. Olivia pointed it out to me while we were on that Zoom call. And that silver car, that's the Range Rover my sister bought on Friday. She bought that car on Friday? Mm-hmm. She was really excited. She had had it for a, a day? Yeah. She drove down to show it to Maddie. Friday afternoon, November. All right, so that's the bur- the first thing that I wasn't aware of. Um, she got the, the Range Rover the day before the incident. Like, so... <clears throat> She wanted it to be a surprise for Maddie, right? So she was going to drive down there. That was the whole purpose of her going down there and yeah. showing it off. Um, you know, I thought maybe perhaps she had it on on some sort of social media, but if she only had it for a day, there's a good chance that she never did put it on social media. Like, yeah. it, it kind of puts it in a huge question as far as like um, how, and we'll, we'll use Brian Koberger because he's alleged to have committed this crime, but like, how would have Koberger have known? That that was Kaylee's vehicle that was parked out there. Yeah, like especially if like, you know, she was a tar- the target, right? Right, right. That's the other thing. Like, it's been suspected that she was a target. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, early on, and and in this ABC podcast, they actually talk about why they um, why they thought initially this was a target targeted incident, and, and it wasn't that apparently, but. Initially, a lot of folks thought maybe perhaps because of the fact that she 
um, had more severe injuries that maybe she was the target. I just found it odd that, you know, a guy goes into this house with a vehicle that he, he probably doesn't recognize. You know what I mean? Like, kind of, I don't know, this guy was trying to commit the perfect crime. All right. Don't you think that that would be a huge uh, hurdle or maybe something that would make you want to stop? Like, whoa, there's a car here I'm not familiar with. Yeah. Yeah, no, like, like scare them off almost, right? Right. Right. All right I'm going to I'm going to play this. If music starts, then I'm going to have to play the music back on. I don't want to. I don't want to play the music. Do you want me to rap? It's what? Do you want me to rap while they're doing it? Yes. Okay. <laughs> right, I'm going to actually kind of. Is it too loud on your end? Do you guys hear it fine? All right. Friday afternoon, November 12th. We know that Kaylee and Maddie went to that last home game of the season. Kaylee's sister says after the game, they went home and took a nap. At 10 p.m., the two girls headed to Main Street to their favorite bar, the Corner Club. So they went to the game that day. They went and took a nap. And then around 10 o'clock, they ended up at the Corner Club. I just want to make sure that we all heard that this is sped up a little bit, um, a lot more than I thought it was. <laughs> starting to, it's starting to sound like Pam. <laughs> it's good. Everyone calls it the club. Kaylee and Maddie were at the Corner Club for a few hours. Video footage shows them drinking and hanging out with friends. Everyone I talked with said that Kaylee and Maddie knew all the bartenders at the Corner Club. They went there often, and they loved it. At around 1.30 in the morning, they leave the Corner Club. Their next stop is the Grub Truck. All right, so at 1.30, they leave the Corner Club. There's footage of them at the Corner Club. So what does that tell you about the theories that this crime started at 1 o'clock in the morning? We'll start off with you, Big Blue. You're muted, by the way. <clears throat> Sorry, repeat it again. I said that if they have footage of them at the corner club till 1 30, yeah. what does that tell you about the theory that this crime started at 1 a.m.? Oh, it's bogus. Yeah, they, they're, they're still eating it. I mean, they're at the club and they go eat at the bar at this place. Yeah, yeah 100%. Is, there's no way it's possible. No mm -hmm. way it's possible. Yeah. So. I just wanted to throw that out, and then they go to the grub truck. Let's uh, continue. Grub. What we know about Ethan and Zana's night is Ethan first went with his siblings, Hunter and Maisie, to Maisie's sorority formal for a couple of hours. His friend, Peter El Goriaga, was there too. Ethan and I were both at the Betty's Ball that night, where you get dressed up nice in your suits, girls getting dressed, do their makeup and all that. When we left that dance, we went back to Sigma Chi, which is the fraternity that he and I belong to, to meet up with Zana at the party we were having there. It's just a short walk from Sigma Chi to the King Road house. And authorities say that Ethan and Zana got back around 1.45 in the morning on Sunday, about the same time that Kaylee and Maddie got home in their rideshare. Kaylee had a dog named Murphy, a girl. So Ethan was at a different party early on and Zana had gone to that Sigma Chi party where Ethan and his friend met up with Zana that night. Right? So that's basically what, what I got the gist out of that. I just wanted to make sure we're all on the same page here. Golden Doodle, as she shared with her ex-boyfriend, Jack. Her sister told me that one of the first things Kaylee probably did when she got home was let Murphy out. Then she and Maddie stayed up till 3 a.m. making calls to Jack, but he didn't answer. He and Kaylee had broken up a few weeks before, but were still close. They'd been on and off again since they were sophomores in high school. At around 4 a.m., Zana got a food delivery from DoorDash. Friends Katie and Ava say the rundown of that night 
those late hours, food deliveries, it all checks out. And then to go home, to get home late, it's pretty normal. Typical. Yeah. 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 To order food at four in the morning, is that, a, is that like a Xana move? That's a Xana move. <laughs> That's a Xana move. She was constantly door dashing. <laughs> Ungodly hours of the night, that was her. It wasn't unusual. All right. So what do you think about that big blue? What does that tell you that she was somebody that door dashed all hours of the night? We saw a picture of a door dash, you know, a jack in a box. What, what do you think? What are, what are your thoughts when you hear that? Yeah, I mean, I think that she was uh, like, a, she liked to enjoy some food after partying and having a few drinks. So door dashing at night, it can be a long time before you get your meal, man. It could be like two hours sometimes. So, so I think, uh, I think that she's, I mean, she's pretty hungry after the bars. I know I am. <laughs> well, what about you? I mean, what does it tell you that, you know, these girls are saying that, you know, her getting a DoorDash at 4 a.m. is a Xana move. It's something that is consistent with what they know of her. Yeah, that, that's not uncommon. Uh, you know, uh, I was looking at that picture of the of the bag, Jack in the Box bag. I never, I noticed that cup too. Um, I don't know if it was. I couldn't see if it was a, a Jack in the Box cup. Couldn't tell. But can you tell? Nah, it looks like a McDonald's. McDonald's. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. I was gonna say because if that's a if that's a Jack in the Box uh, milkshake. Man, those milk chips are hella thick, man. They take forever to drink. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, no, I, I I get that. But <clears throat> here's what it tells me. Right? Oh, oops, my bad. Here's what it tells me. Is that there's a good possibility that this bag isn't from that night. If she was constantly ordered, there's nothing that says that the DoorDash was jack in the box we are all assuming because they said that xana received an order yeah and that this jack in the box has Xana's name on it there's quite a possibility that this is from a different night now we have seen pictures from um outside of the house inside of the windows and it was a huge mess in that house uh, you had a reminiscence of a party which we know they didn't have a party saturday night because they went to the game yeah. and then they went out to all these different parties and, and to the corner club you know, from all the victims. We know those two things. So uh, this is quite possibly from the night before or some other time recent. It doesn't necessarily have to mean that that was the 4 a.m. Um, DoorDash, which means that you, you don't necessarily have to have Xana walking into the kitchen that night. There's a good possibility that she received her DoorDash, went into her bedroom or on her way to her bedroom she noticed the sliding back door was open or something said i think somebody's here or you know went back to her bedroom was eating heard something maybe also heard kaylee struggling or what sounded like kaylee playing with the dog according to the pca uh, those things could have been heard and and she may have never gone into the kitchen there may th this could exp i think people are looking at this and putting two and two together that she must have gone into the kitchen and there must have been some sort of struggle there if she didn't have to go into the kitchen and this isn't connected, then there's a good possibility that there wasn't a struggle there. Does that make sense? What I'm trying to say? Yeah, not only that, but like, like, like you just said, like you got Jack in the Box, McDonald's, and then other pictures that were also uh, beer cans. 
right? Yeah. Like yeah. they were all over the place. So, I mean, not all over the place, but there were some around the, the table. And so we don't even know if there were those from that night or a couple of nights before. Right, exactly. So um, to me, I think that's important. Let's continue. And then we'll get into some of the, uh, a lot of the new information that we weren't aware of. <laughs> On godly hours of the night, that was her. It wasn't unusual. On Sunday morning, November 13th of last year, word began to spread that something awful might have happened inside the house on King Road. That someone or multiple people had been killed. Friends started to reach out to the five roommates who lived there, checking in, hoping this was all some wild campus rumor. We were like, okay, let's figure it out. Like, let's not panic, you know, we're going to make sure this is actually what happened. Katie, a close friend of the victims who you met in the last episode, remembers the moment she first realized the tragic news might be true. And I remember texting Kaylee. <laughs> See if she was okay. <laughs> she obviously didn't ever respond. So it was in the morning. All right. So this entire segment right here says that even, even the ABC correspondent says that word started to spread in the morning through an app. An app that we know where warrants were select were, were grabbed. And then this girl here says that they, they heard about the warrants. They didn't want to, I mean, the warrants. They heard about the uh, about the situation. They didn't want to panic. They began to call, but they didn't answer because it was in the morning. We know that the 911 call came in at, uh, hey, what's going on, Jay, for justice? 1158. Uh, we, yeah, at 11.58 a.m., so just before noon. Hmm. All right. So let's, let's, let's look at this. You know, and I was, I, was, I was talking about this with, with Jay on Jay for Justice, and I was telling her, I was like, you know, we think that there's a good possibility that Dylan and Bethany may have been texting throughout the night or, or, or shortly after the incident with each other, right? There's that good possibility. Now, if they did, is it possible maybe they messaged people outside of the house and like, hey, something crazy, we just heard something crazy, whatever the case may be, and then Somebody outside of the house, whenever they woke up and got those messages, started putting, you know, things together and started saying, hey, I think something crazy happened. And that's how those rumors started to spread so early. Could be. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. So <clears throat> that's one thing that you know I wanted to keep in touch. But even the ABC correspondent. Hey, Tuesday, how's it going? Uh, the correspondent. And the girls have both mentioned being, you know, notified about this in the morning, which technically 1158 is the morning. But I do wanted to go back and we can listen to that one more time. Late hours of the night, that was her. It wasn't unusual. On Sunday morning, November 13th of last year, word began to spread that something awful might have happened inside the house on King Road. That someone or multiple people had been killed. Friends started to reach out to the five roommates who lived there checking in, hoping this was all some wild campus rumor. We were like, okay, let's figure it out. Like, let's not panic. You know, we're going to make sure this is actually what happened. Katie, a close friend of the victims who you met in the last episode, remembers the moment she first realized the tragic news might be true. And I remember texting Kaylee. <laughs> See if she was okay. <laughs> she obviously didn't ever respond. So it was in the morning. Here's what we've been able to piece together from our reporting. The two surviving roommates in the King Road home woke up to a quiet house. Their friends' cars were still outside, but they weren't replying to texts. 
We don't know if the surviving roommates tried to enter their rooms to check on them, but we do know the roommates contacted two other friends to come over and help. And at 11.58 a.m., a group of students made a call to 911. We still don't know who made the 911 call that day, but we do know that the 911 operator spoke to multiple individuals on the phone. Local public radio reporter Lauren Patterson had been house hunting that Sunday afternoon when she got the university. All right. So we have been told, you know, by Christy, who she believes uh, called the 911 call, which was Ethan's best friend. That was reported by News Nation. uh, And she confirmed that that was accurate, um, that that was who found the bodies. Now, as far as like the whole pulse thing, uh, that wasn't brought up to my attention. And based on the description of what she told me, I don't think it's feasible. But, you know, she did not tell me whether or not that happened or not based on the information that she got. So <clears throat> what they were able to put together, and this is new information that I wasn't aware of, was that two people were called to the house and that there was messages going back and forth between Dylan and Bethany that morning. And to the other roommates trying to um, probably uh, see if they're OK. Yeah. All right. So this kind of aligns a little bit with what we were thinking that maybe perhaps these girls never took a step foot outside of their bedrooms. Right. Are you guys on the same path or same page with me on this one? Yeah. 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 There was there was no blood trace to the kitchen. If the people say it started in the kitchen. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. These emergency text alert about a homicide and the warning to a 911. We still don't know who made the 911 call that day, but we do know that the 911 operator spoke to multiple individuals on the phone. Local public radio reporter Lauren Patterson had been house hunting that Sunday afternoon when she got the university's emergency text alert about a homicide and the warning to shelter in place. Instead, Lauren began chasing the story. Reportedly, the callers were trying to rouse a person they believed to be unconscious who wouldn't wake up. Police initially said the surviving roommates believed one of the second floor victims had passed out and wasn't waking up. But Ethan, Zana, Maddie, and Kaylee had been brutally murdered. How could the call to 911 have been so far off? Well, my sources tell me that it was surprising how contained the crime scenes in the two bedrooms were. There was no trail of blood outside the rooms, no obvious signs of an attack. The cops show up. They No trail blood outside of the room, no sign of attack. Now, we go back to what the coroner said early on in this investigation. She stated that it appeared that they were attacked in their sleep or in bed, right? Yeah. So we know that the reason, so based on what Christy told us is that Ethan's best friend arrived at the scene after being called by the uh, by the girls. He attempted to make entry into Zana's bedroom, but could not make entry because the door was blocked by uh, by by Ethan on the ground there. And that he was only able to open it up enough to to look in. Yeah. Right? That's yeah. what we know about that situation. What what do you guys what y'all guys any comments or opinions so far? What do you think, Blue, as far as like no trail outside of this? Because a lot of folks think that there was some sort of disturbance, there was some sort of fight, uh, like Something happened in the hallway. Something happened in the in the kitchen. This right here indicates yeah. that there was no sign of struggle anywhere in those areas, and there was no trail blood, and that everything was contained to the bedrooms. Yeah, I was gonna say that there's no trail, and they would have seen a sign of struggle, man. If it, even from a nose big, you'll have like 
drops of blood going back to the restroom or whatever. There's no trace. So I believe everything happened in the bedrooms. That would explain why they didn't see anything in the morning when they woke up and the doors were closed. Right. Also kind of tells me that maybe perhaps not as much evidence was contaminated. The scene wasn't as contaminated as we thought it was. Oh. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I feel like he caught him. The person caught him off uh, by surprise. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. Like there wasn't like, like you said earlier, there wasn't like a a fight that broke out, and then and then that happened. It's more like he walked in, kind of by surprise, and did what what he did. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Let's continue. I'll back this up a little bit. Surprising how contained the crime scenes in the two bedrooms were. There was no trail of blood outside the rooms, no obvious signs of an attack. The cops show up, they walk into the residence, and that's when they find the two victims on the second floor and the two victims on the third floor. We know now that the victims sustained multiple stab wounds. Some had defensive wounds too. Moscow police said this was the worst thing they'd ever seen, and the county coroner confirming there was a lot of blood. We don't know much more about the 911 call. Authorities refused to release the audio or the transcript or say who was on the call. In Idaho, law enforcement can choose not to release the 911 calls if authorities believe the information is crucial to the investigation. In an early press conference, the way police talked about the call was vague. The call originated from inside the residence and was made from the phone of one of the surviving roommates. Presume. Meanwhile, local journalists like Lauren Patterson were pursuing the story on the ground. Locals started talking. Was it guns? Was it drugs? Was someone heard something about a knife? We were just trying to figure out what was going on. As a local journalist and alumni, someone who lives in Moscow, I wanted to get to the bottom of it right away. Myself about what else is going on. Targeted attack. It's a phrase that will come up over and over again in this case. At this point, the police hadn't explained why they thought the killings had been targeted, but the mayor did. A fascinating detail no other news outlet had gotten. His explanation went like this. The crime took place around four in the morning and then eight hours passed with no other incidents. That's why police believe there was no further threat. If the killer wanted to continue harming others, why wouldn't they have taken the opportunity before anyone was on the hunt for them? So this is the first time I have heard of why they thought this was a targeted event and why they continue to say this was a targeted event. Right? Yeah. So I don't know if I buy it. <laughs> I, I think they called it a targeted event because the the suspect went straight to the third floor. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they didn't I'm, try to open other any other doors at least, or look through other doors or rooms. I mean, maybe. I mean, here's here's why I think it. They thought it was a targeted attack. They they probably looked at the situation. You had one victim. Uh, who had more severe wounds yeah. than the other ones. And then that victim also so happened to have, have been out of a recent long-term relationship. Mm -hmm. And that person lived for fairly close. And you know, that's going to be the number one suspect. Right, right off the bat. In fact, the mayor came out, I think, the very first day or the second day after the incident and mm -hmm. stated this was a crime of passion. And then he walked it back the next day saying that it could be a crime of passion. It also could be like a burglar uh, gone wrong. Uh, Oh man, what's with the super sticker? You know, I have, I've noticed that nobody's been able to send anything. I have it turned on, right? Let me double check. 
But but yeah, yeah because yeah. it should sure oh. look like that, right? What do you mean? Usually, like you know, one of the victims has more injuries to them than everybody else. Yeah, yeah. When you when you have that aspect that's coming out, and then you also have um, you know the injuries and everything else, you're probably going to see that. But you, you you had the mayor say that this was a crime of passion, and then walk it back. That tells me that. You know, these guys probably thought very early on in this investigation that this was uh, this was that. And I think they thought that they had their guy. Yeah. Um, oh, here it is. It's starting to work. Hope and happiness comes in with a four ninety nine super sticker. Thank you. Uh, One eyed flow with five dollars super sticker. Thank you. Oh, they're coming in now. C team turn trims. C trims two ninety nine. Thank you. So. Their story is basically saying that um, that basically hold on, I lost where I was going at. Let me rewind it a little bit and then we'll, we'll go back. Fascinating detail no other news outlet had gotten. All right, I remember now. So it was that detail that nobody had gotten. Man, <laughs> hold on. I don't remember what the detail was. So much more about the 911 call. Authorities refused to release the audio or the transcript or say who was on the call. In Idaho, law enforcement can choose not to release the 911 calls if authorities believe the information is crucial to the investigation. In an early press conference, the way police talked about the call was vague. The call originated from inside the residence and was made from the phone of one of the surviving roommates. Resume. Meanwhile, local journalists like Lauren Patterson were pursuing the story on the ground. Locals started talking. Was it guns? Was it drugs? Was someone heard something about a knife? We were just trying to figure out what was going on. As a local journalist, an alumni, someone who lives in Moscow, I wanted to get to the bottom of it right away. Myself about what else is going on. Targeted attack. It's a phrase that will come up over and over again in this case. At this point, the police hadn't explained why they thought the killings had been targeted, but the mayor did. A fascinating detail no other news outlet had gotten. His explanation went like this. The crime took place around four in the morning and then eight hours passed with no other incidents. That's why police believe there was no further threat. If the killer wanted to continue harming others, why wouldn't they have taken the opportunity before anyone was on the hunt for them? There's not uh, uh, any hazard to the rest of the people in town. Nobody else has anything to worry about. But when police chief James Fry held his first press conference on Wednesday, again, three days after the murders. So at this time, um, I'm going to open it up to some questions. It started to feel like he was going back on this initial statement that the community was safe when he was pressed by reporters. Over the past couple of days, the information that we've been getting is there is not a threat to the public. And earlier I heard you say you can't be sure that there is no threat. I just want to clarify what um, your stance is on that at this time. So we, we did believe we still believe it's a targeted attack. But the reality is, is there's still a, a person out there who committed four horrible, horrible crimes. So I think we got to go back to um, there, there is a, a threat out there still, possibly. We don't know. We don't believe it's going to be to anybody else. But we all have to be um, aware of our surroundings and make sure that we're watching out for each other. As frequently is the case. So this whole targeted thing, uh, honestly, I think that was just them walking it back. They They probably thought that this was a crime of passion and wanted to walk it back. We have to understand that. Day one of this investigation, the law enforcement didn't have all of the information in front of them. They didn't have all the evidence in front of them. And so they had limited information. And sometimes they're wrong. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes they're wrong. And I think that's what the case was. And by them coming up with this little story about it being because 
of, you know, uh, oh, he didn't attack anybody else. It must be over. I think that's all BS. And that's just a CYI tactic. They're just covering their 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 backside. What do you think, Big Blue? You're muted. Yeah, yeah I think uh, in the beginning when they don't have the full info that it might have looked like a crime of passion to them. Yeah. 100, 100. Definitely, especially like we said earlier, like all the aspects of what's going on, the the break of the recent break of the the she's moving right. Um, Is it set that that high? I, I, I thought we have it set like a dollar. Didn't matter. Yeah, I don't think it was set. Well, we've had a lot of them come in way less than that. We just had one come in for three dollars. Yeah. yeah. As far as the link, this is uh, something that I created and put together um, and edited it up. I have it on YouTube as unlinked and unregistered just just so we can watch it and go through it so it's not like an actual link to to anything per se it's something that i went edited up put it together uh this is 29 minutes um i want to say 26 minutes of this is from the abc news podcast that was five podcasts deep about 40 minutes each so i only got the stuff that we hadn't heard about before wait what yeah, I don't see it pop up anywhere in the start. Yeah, I don't see it either. And I'm let me I'm sorry, wondering orphan. Let me let me look and see if it actually went through because I'm not seeing I'm looking it up here and it's not coming through. I think well and I think other I was watching the couple of other podcasts. Um was it yesterday? Oh today in the afternoon in the afternoon in the morning. And yeah. they were also having a little bit of trouble with their their chats and their their memberships too. So yeah, that because, might be a thing that YouTube's going through right now. Yeah, because right now it says that our chat revenue is under thirty dollars. So yeah. I know for a fact we didn't get that. Yeah, because that's what it's. I don't care if I show it. It's at twenty eight ninety six. So um, <clears throat> something's going just, on. Yeah, something yeah. is up. Feds. Yeah, that's those feds again. Yeah. So. Oh. There you go. There's a few episodes to go. Oh, okay. I am so sorry. I didn't see that. Well, thank you so much. Um, we definitely have to go back and look for that. I apologize if we didn't check it out. That is our mistake. Thank you. Thank you. So, all right, let's let's get back into this. But do you guys buy the story that they're saying about the targeted thing? I don't. I I think they um they said it and they sure enough, right? And now yeah. they're like, oh, maybe we should not say that. And like you said, they were trying to walk it back. Yeah, I think they were just trying to save face, to be honest with you. Yeah. Just trying to save face. Uh, let's continue. Of our surroundings and make sure that we're watching out for each other. As frequently is the case with romantic partners and exes, Kaylee's ex was initially questioned by police. In fact, Kaylee's parents say that when he came to the King Road house to check on Kaylee and Maddie the morning of the murders, he wasn't treated like someone who'd just lost two longtime friends. They heard sirens. They heard and, you know, obviously it was the first responder seeing, you know, what was going on and people crying and, and he said he just kept waiting for them to come out of the house. Yeah. And they never did. Yeah. You know, and then you walk over there and the first thing they do is throw you in a cop car. It's just, it had to be a nightmare. Yeah. He was taken in for quite. So this is exactly what Christy had told us that he woke up in this Jack decor, went over to the house and, um, Basically, they brought him in for questioning immediately once they figured out who he was and he identified himself to police officers. Um, so I wanted to put this in there just as confirmation 
to what we had said when it came to the timeline or Jack DeCourse timeline. Um, he was in questioning right away, um, you know, before um, 1.32 when Christy was trying to call him. So just uh, to, you know, that information. Questioning that day, but police quickly said he was not a suspect. Still, as he was grieving the loss of Kaylee and Maddie, he got pelted with speculation on social media that he was the killer. Did Jack live on that street? Yes, he did. At 11.58 a.m. on November 13th, the Moscow Police Department received that mysterious 911 call that has yet to be made public. It was seeking help for an unconscious person at a house on King Road. But as soon as officers entered the house, it was clear they were dealing with something much more serious. They discovered four bodies, and the victims were far beyond saving. The mayor told me the officers carefully backed out of the house, closed the door, and applied for a warrant, allowing them to enter the home and begin processing it as a crime scene. So they locked down the house and applied for a warrant. I think that's important because a lot of folks are looking at certain aspects of this case, like, for instance, the cell phone. And like, for instance, there's this theory that perhaps uh, they didn't have Kaylee's phone and that Brian Koberger uh, or whoever committed this crime allegedly uh, took the phone with them. And that's why they thought that this was targeted because they the Moscow Police Department applied for warrants. Mm -hmm. I think that this is important to have in here because they applied for warrants to even go into the house. No, regardless of anything, you're going to apply for warrants everywhere across this. There isn't even if they had permission from Kaylee's parents who owned the phone, did they have to get a warrant to go through and get the information from the phone? Uh, yeah. Even if this person wasn't alive, like for instance, if you yourself wanted to call uh, T-Mobile or Verizon or AT&T and say, "Hey, I want a copy of my, uh, uh, you know, copy of my uh, text messages." and what's in them. They wouldn't give it to you without a subpoena from court. And so um, this is to protect the business and their clients and the way that they do things in their privacy, not so much to protect the person that owns the phone. So I wanted to debunk that aspect that, is it possible that the alleged person took the phone? Yes, I don't know if they have it or not, but does the warrants that they got for Kaylee's phone indicate that they didn't have the phone? Absolutely not, that is not an indication. I hope that makes sense. Does that make sense to you guys? Yeah, well, yeah, no, it does. Um, what's it called? Because if dating, like, if the law enforcement just got information of the call log, um, they wouldn't be able to use it uh, in court, right? Without uh, them filing for a for a search warrant, right? Yeah, I mean, everything would have to have a warrant. I mean, it's a CYA, it's a cover your ass type of thing. But at the end of the day, it's also a situation where um, it's not just, you know, having permission from, it's not like, for instance, a person that owns a car, right? You know, they own a car, you can, every aspect of that car, um, you know, they can give permission to go into and check. When it comes to a phone, they don't own everything uh, that's on the phone. A lot of those things are from apps and people sign permissions and things like that nature. Yeah, the carrier um, and everything. Yeah, to go through with it and with the carrier, which is what requires the warrant. And so you need a warrant to go through that phone, regardless, even if you had permission from that person, yeah, because yeah. that person doesn't own everything on that phone. It's not mm -hmm. like a car where that person that's in possession of that car is considered the owner of everything in the car. And so it's, it's, it's a little bit different, but I wanted to explain that.
Oh, remember in, in in the case that we were watch uh, doing when um, we was found, you know, probably clipped by a car on the road. His mom had been subpoenaing to be able to get the phone records for a while, and it took almost a year to be able to get. I think the the records to be able to get the numbers. I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's. Like I, I've been, in, I've never investigated like a murder or any of those things, but I've had to deal with, you know, as just a regular officer, had to deal with getting, you know, warrants for for phones for a um, number of situations, and even if you had permission, you still need to get a warrant. So, um, it's it's very common. So I wouldn't I wouldn't put those two things together. Yeah. It, it it doesn't necessarily it doesn't mean that they didn't take the phone, right? There's still that possibility. I don't know if they did or not. I just wanted to say that the warrants alone aren't an indication. Let's continue. Once Chief Fry learned the severity of the situation, he said he called Idaho State Police right away, followed by the FBI. Must All right. So once Chief Fry learned about the situation, he called other agencies. So other agencies were aware and brought in the day of the incident. So. To think that there was some sort of frame job going on, it would have had to have happened before this multi-agency check and balance would have taken place. You know, and the fact that they were in so quickly, you know, leads me to believe that the likelihood of a frame job or a cover up or any of those things is logical. Let's get those likes up, y'all. It doesn't cost anything. For a warrant, allowing them to enter the home and begin processing it as a crime scene. Once Chief Fry learned the severity of the situation, he said he called Idaho State Police right away, followed by the FBI. Moscow PD would remain the lead on the investigation because the killings weren't a federal crime, but the bigger agencies would lend more investigative heft to the small department. The mayor told me that initially, Moscow PD had a hard time determining what might be evidence, what might be remnants of a struggle with a killer, and what was just an untidy college house. Over the next few weeks, authorities say they sent more than 100 items to the Idaho State Crime Lab for processing. Remember, this is a six-bedroom house where five college kids lived. It's also a big party house where tons of people came and went. There were fingerprints and DNA everywhere. All right, so fingerprints, DNA everywhere. So when people look at, for instance, the fact that there was unnamed sources of DNA in the house, right? that that's what the defense had put out there. It's very clear that we take a, when you look at that paperwork and you look at that sentence, that there's a date on there. It says as of December 17th. Well, as of December 17th, they didn't even have Brian Koberger's name either. According to the New York Times article, Brian Koberger comes up off of that genetic tree, off of that DNA testing on December 19th. And so what they're saying is that there was multiple unknown DNA samples up to this point. It doesn't necessarily mean that currently and right now that those DNA samples are currently unknown because as of December 17th, so was the DNA on the sheath, right? Now we know that as of 19th, it's now Koberger sheath or DNA. So I think that was clearly important to put, you know, to bring to the attention, All right? Let's continue. The amount of evidence to collect and items to process within the home was staggering. The layout of the house on the hill is real. I also wanted to add that 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 when it said that there was an um, unknown DNA, that it didn't necessarily mean, and this is what we said earlier, that there wasn't any other DNA 
there's not a uh, an indication of a cleanup or any of those things. It just means that all the other DNA that they had as of December 17th was accounted for. Right. All right. Let's go back a little bit and then we'll start. A big party house where tons of people came and went. There were fingerprints and DNA everywhere. The amount of evidence to collect and items to process within the home was staggering. The layout of the house on the hill is really important to understanding the crime scene. You go up the stairs to the second floor. So I know somebody said, what about that shoe print on the second floor sign of cleaning? When we talked to our um, to Stephanie, the forensic expert, when we talked about how that the that shoe print was a latent print that had to be you that required Amino Black to be uh, to use it uh, or to find it. One, she told us that that Amino Black would have destroyed that sample. Uh, so they couldn't they wouldn't have been able to test that piece of blood to determine that it was one or a mixture of any of the victims in the house uh, or it could have been from another source. And two, it wasn't visible Then it was found on the second one. So, uh, you know, based on what she's, you know, her opinion is that that could have been there from weeks earlier and not not at all a part of the incident. This is where Zana Carnotal's bedroom was. Police found her body. This is where Zana Carnotal's bedroom was. Police found her body in her room, along with the body of her boyfriend, Ethan Chapin. So here again, it says that Zana and Ethan were found in the room. Okay. Not in the hallway or in anywhere else. And we know there's no trails going anywhere outside of these, these rooms. On Thursday, the 17th of November, four days after the murders, the coroner, Kathy Mabbitt, released her report and talked with our local affiliate, KXLY. There was quite a bit of blood in the apartment and, you know, it was a pretty traumatic scene to find four dead college students in a residence. The coroner also released an additional statement, saying she believed the four students were likely asleep when they were first attacked with an edged weapon and that some of them showed evidence of defensive wounds. Now, I do want to add that defensive wounds don't necessarily mean that they fought back, right? We we have speculated that um, we think that there was no DNA underneath the fingernails. You know, we think that, you know, touch DNA isn't as strong. And, you know, our forensic experts stated the same thing, that touch DNA is not as strong. Um, it's not that it's not very strong. Now, if they had skin cells underneath the fingernails of somebody, that would be different. Doesn't sound like that's the case, and I think that that's the uh, that's the DNA you would be testing for, not necessarily against the DNA on, on the sheath. And so, uh, defensive wounds don't necessarily mean that there's something underneath the fingers, but yeah. perhaps if uh, if the rumors are true that Xana grabbed grabbed a hold of the uh, of the knife uh, and that it cut her hand, that would be a sign of defensive wounds. Yeah. If somebody put their arms up and got cut on the back of their arms. Try to block right. Yeah, exactly. Sign of defensive wounds. So don't get tripped up on it saying, oh, there's defensive wounds. That means that they attacked back. That's not yeah. necessarily true. Two weeks after the murders, on November 28th, Steve Gonzalez told me that Kaylee and Maddie were cremated and that he was in possession of both girls' urns and death certificates. Steve learned from the death certificates that his daughter's injuries were far more significant than Maddie's. So he learned from the death certificates which injuries were more significant, not from the police. Okay, I think that's important uh, because that means that, for one, uh, that that shows 
that they're not lying to me when they say that the police aren't telling them things, that all their information that they've gathered is from other sources, right? And that also tells me that they probably don't know the condition of Xana or Ethan, that the only reason that they were aware of Maddie's condition was because they had a copy of the death report for her. Does that make sense? Now right, let's go. Moscow PD issued a bulletin that they were on the hunt for a very specific vehicle, a white Hyundai Elantra, made between 2011 and 2013. They hoped to learn if its occupant or occupants had any information in regards to the case. The police started communicating with everyone, putting the word out via press releases, interviews. We want footage. They gave us maps of all the areas. They were trying to pull any surveillance footage from people's cameras, doorbells, whatever they could find to get footage of this white Elantra. However, the excitement over the lead was short-lived when citizens began to realize just how daunting a task it would be for police to sift through such a high volume of tips and surveillance footage. This new call to action for the community brought in yet another deluge of tips, so many that police had to redirect the tip line to the FBI Global Call Center. All right, so I think that's important because a lot of people believe that the police department um, was purposely... Uh, excluding the 2014 to 16 Elantra to give Koberger some sort of sense of false security. Mm -hmm. But this tells us that that in, that resulted in a ton of tips that were unnecessary to the point where they had to create their own tip line. Yeah, they didn't have enough manpower, I think, to, to take control of all the tips coming in. Exactly. So kind of like with Richard Allen, right? Remember in the Delphi case where all these tips started coming in, people started coming forward, all this stuff, his, his statement that puts him there got buried under everything. So that's a key point to why you don't want to put out false information or want tips off of false information. Now it's one thing to put out false information, you know, to, to trick somebody, but to ask for tips is different because you end up you know, drowning your drowning the good tips and flooding or flooding out all the you know getting flooded with a lot of bad tips and drowning out the good ones, and so you don't want to do that. And I think that was important to to put this in there because, like I've said, and we theorize that on, you know, December sixteenth or when yeah December sixteenth when Brian Koberger arrived in Pennsylvania at the Pocono Mountains, that he was not prime suspect number one. He, he wasn't even on the radar yet. Uh, as far as a person of interest, I think they had his name. They looked at him and they let him go. And as we get into this, that'll explain further. This town is, um, it's a little bit eerie here. That's how we ended up driving through campus with Sergeant Kurt Sprout from Idaho State Police. He was working on the investigation. And on this particular day, he was on campus doing patrols at the request of the University of Idaho. On the day of our ride-along in mid-December, a month after the murders, one of the questions I wanted to ask him is where he thought the killer was. Do you think that this person has left town, or do you think this person is assimilated and is in Moscow? Yeah, I'm not going to answer that one. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but you do have an opinion? Yes. Okay. He didn't want to say more on camera, so we spoke privately, and he told me now it's okay if I share this conversation. I asked him, with this huge head start, and given that we're only, what, a few hours from the border to Canada, did he think the suspect had made a run for it and could be anywhere? He looked at me right in my eyes and said, I think he's here. God is not on his side. 
So this was with one of the Idaho State Police officers, uh, middle of, of December, a month after uh, the incident. But real quick, I want to say thank you, Tuesday, for your $50 super chat. Hey, y'all from Idaho right now. How's it going? Are you, are you, you know, I know you're from Idaho, but how close are you from the Moscow area? Let us know. Let us know. Ah, there you go. Yeah, uh, Tuesday had to restart their phone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate you. So thank you. They thought he was there in town. Middle of December. Just kind of keep that in your head. Keep that in your head. They thought he was in town. I had no idea if the killer was in our midst or far away. It would turn out to be both. On December 29th, around four in the afternoon, I was at the grocery store at home in California. As I was checking out, I got a call from a law enforcement source who said, you need to come back to Moscow. When I said, I'll try to fly out first thing in the morning, they said, if that's the best you can do. So my producer, Timmy, and I boarded a plane that night to Spokane, Washington. When I let my source know, they said something like, that's good, you'll be here in time. We got off the plane and started the 90 minute drive to Moscow. It was late and dark. We didn't really know why we were doing this. But then I heard from a source again, still vague, but they said, tomorrow, it was going to be a good day. Koberger was dressed in a bullet. So a couple of things about what they were saying. And I'm not sure if I was looking at this, if, if we heard it. Uh, and it might be a little bit later. Did they say about the four days? No. Okay. All right. So they were talking about, you know, coming back and arresting him in the whole nine yards. Um, she went out to Idaho. Uh, this next part that they're talking about is in reference to the uh, where Koberger went to court and signed his um, uh, waiver of extradition uh, yeah. so that he could go back to Idaho and face his charges and see the probable cause affidavit. That's where we're at in in this. Uh, any any questions or thoughts before we move forward? We'll start with you, Jaime. Um Yeah, well, I'm just going to go back to the to the 911 call. Um, yeah, because. When she said that there was multiple people, I, I automatically think there's more than two, right? Like from I, what I, from what I, what I understand, that that's what I see when they say multiple people. I don't, I don't think about two. I think more than two. I don't know how y'all. Um, the Howard that. Bloom, yeah, the Howard Bloom article indicated that it there was a few people out there. So, you, so they, they, well, they called from. I'm guessing Dylan's, right? Um, they haven't said which one, right? But I'm sus I'm suspecting that it's Dylan's phone. Right. I, I suspect it was probably Dylan's phone too. I mean, if we were to think about it, let's just say that these girls um, were in their room and never left their bedroom, right? Let's just say that that's the case, and let's just say that the back sliding glass door was left open the way we suspect that being the case. If um, Ethan's best friend was in the house that I think he was in, which was the house right next to, in fact, let me, let me pull it up real quick. So this is the uh, victim's residence right here. Let me zoom in. Uh, there's a lot of images of Kaylee, Zanna, and and, uh, and uh, Maddie out here at this residence. And there are pictures of Ethan's best friend at this residence. I believe either Ethan's best friend either resides here or his girlfriend at the time resided here and he was staying there. And so if he was staying here and exited this house and ran up the back, he would have ran up the back, the back um, door 
right? My, my theory is that he probably got a call and somebody said something about his best friend. So in a panic, he left really fast, leaving his phone behind, right? Ran in through the back. And when you go in through the back, you would have to go in front of Dylan's door to Ooh. get to Zana's bedroom. And I think maybe at that point, he grabbed Dylan's phone. Says, did you call 911? Maybe she said, no, I'm scared, whatever the case may be. He grabs the phone. Maybe he's on the phone with 911 trying to get in and is saying something to the effect like, you know, I can't get through the door or whatever the door. There's somebody on the ground and they can't see the extent of the injuries. And that's why he comes in as a uh, unconscious person. And once he's able to peer in and see what he sees, he says, everybody get out. And by that point, first responders are arriving on scene. That's kind of the way I picture this entire scenario going down. See, the, the one thing that I don't get is if you listen to the beginning when they talk about the 911, about how they, she says that I, the law prevents them from releasing the 911 tapes because it would interfere with their investigation. Well, their investigations should already be over. But it's not. You can tell because they're still doing warrants. And the fact that they haven't found supposedly the weapon, to our knowledge, they could still be investigating this case. Okay. okay. So I thought they got Brian, so they should be able to release it, but we'll see. No, nah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know if there's anything pertinent you know, on that 911 call that would jeopardize this case, to be honest with you. I think they asked the Chief Fry that early in this investigation, and he said that he didn't think that it would you know, be a big issue if it was released. It just never was released. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I don't know. It is what it is. All right, let's continue. Still vague, but they said, tomorrow is going to be a good day. Koberger was dressed in a bulletproof vest specifically for his walk from the prison van into the courthouse. That would put him in plain view of the public, and authorities were concerned someone might try to harm him. The Koberger family sat directly in front of me. His mother, Marianne, wore all black and sobbed all the way through the hearing. His sister, Melissa, sat next to her mother and tried to comfort her. Somehow, Melissa's dark eye makeup didn't smear through her own tears. Next to Melissa sat his other sister, Amanda, who looks just like him. At the end of the bench, Brian Koberger's father, Michael, his face dissolving into tears even before. So I think it's important to say that both of Brian Koberger's sisters were at his extradition hearing. So I know there's been like some theories and rumors that possibly Koberger, the sister was, um, you know, somebody that stated that, you know, they thought it was suspicious of him wearing, you know, gloves. And they, they suspected him of being involved in this crime because he had a vehicle and he was acting suspicious. They were there to support him during his trial. So, yeah, supposedly was- this suspected of this suspected him of that to the point where they mm-hmm. went to check his car, right? That's that's the rumor. That's, that's the rumor. rumor. Yeah. Yep. That that Dateline put out. So it's yeah. it, who knows. But, you know, I, I also think that that rumor that Dateline put out there is probably from a police officer. Is it possible that, you know, was it called like a gesture statement where somebody just blurt something out? Is it possible that during the commotion that one of the sisters, you know, went to an officer like what's going on? We suspect him. He's under arrest for this. And, you know, we have a search warrant because he's suspected of committing this quadruple homicide. And maybe perhaps one of them said, man, I knew something was weird. And he was wearing gloves. And that was weird. You know, just kind of talking because they're in shock of the entire situation. Yeah. You get what I'm saying? I think that's what it may have been more than anything. So, all right, let's let's continue. 
before the hearing began. Throughout the proceedings, Koberger turned around to look at his family, giving them glances and nods. He waived his right to extradition, which meant he'd return to Moscow immediately to face charges. Koberger bent awkwardly to sign the document with his left hand. He was still in cuffs. As he was ushered out of the courtroom, he looked back at his seated family and clear as day, mouthed the words, I love you. So he went down and signed it with his left hand. You know, we all wondered if he was right-handed, left-handed. Most serial killers are left In my opinion, so, I mean, I, what is the percentage of people that are left-handed? Let's see. That I do not know. Let's find out. Let's ask Google. Let's ask Google. What is the percentage left-handed? Uh, let's go with males. 10%. 10% of males are left-handed. Mm-hmm. All right. So I think this is important because if 10% of males are left-handed, that kind of shrinks down you know, and limits your possibilities of people. You know, you, you got the front license plate not there, the DNA on the sheet, the phone being off. If it comes to find out that during this investigation that they believe that the perpetrator was left-hand dominant during the struggle or during the commission of this crime. Mm-hmm. That's another tally against Koberger. That doesn't necessarily mean he's guilty. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, right, people can write with different hands. Maybe maybe he's choosing to write left-handed and he's really right-handed. I don't know. But if, if he's left-handed and it comes to find out that the person that committed this crime is left-hand dominant, that's just another brick on the circumstantial evidence that is starting to pile up. Yes, sir. Uh, uh, he also said that, you know, they said that he looked at his family and said, I love you. So that shows that he does have some sort of emotion. Right. Now, when I was on J for Justice, we we're talking about how in every video or every image that we see him you know, from body cam footage, he's got this stare. Right. And except for when he's talking with his attorney. Now, I said, maybe it's an act, maybe it's a facade, maybe it's, you know, he knows that all, all eyes are on him and that he is being accused of being this misogynist, this, this guy that uh, looks down upon women. Uh, maybe perhaps if he's acting a certain way, that's, uh, that it would clear up his image, so to speak. Because that's the only time I ever see him smiling. Like, I mean, we've, there's not very, well, I guess there is some pictures of him smiling too. And, you know, obviously he's going through some crazy crap and getting pulled over by the police department. You wouldn't be smiling either, but he he doesn't have, he has a lack of emotion. Let me rephrase that. And that's the only time I see emotion was when he's looking at his lawyer. Doesn't he have like a night condition or something? Yeah. Yeah. Well, he has that visual snow stuff, which we'll go into in, in this thing here. Okay. And, you know, uh, this um, video we'll talk about, but yeah, he has that visual snow. Um, but I don't think that is something that's happening all the time. Let's see. Well, let's find out. Let's, let's continue. But perhaps the biggest bombshell we learned in the affidavit is that law enforcement was able to collect DNA from the scene of the crime that they believe belongs to the killer. According to the affidavit, the Idaho State Crime Lab found DNA on a knife sheath they recovered from Maddie's bed next to her body. A law enforcement source told me later that saying the sheath was located on the bed next to Madison is a bit misleading, that it was discovered sort of underneath her, 
giving investigators an indication that the suspect might have lost sight of it during the attack. The sheath belonged to a military fighting knife described as a K-bar with a seven-inch blade. We talked with an expert in forensic sciences to better understand what's called touch DNA. Dr. Daniel Padini explains how easy it is to leave your DNA behind. The sample collected from the button of this knife sheet yielded a single-source male DNA profile, meaning that it originated from a single individual. To confirm that they were the person that left their DNA on the knife sheet, they had to collect the sample directly from him or direct relatives. And this is where the investigation started to feel more like something out of a TV show. So what they did is they went through the trash of the family and uh, were able to generate the DNA profile from objects that were collected from the trash. And the DNA profile was consistent from originating from the biological father of the DNA from the knife sheet. We learned from the Pennsylvania State Police that for four days before his arrest, the FBI had Koberger under surveillance at his... So first and foremost, all about that DNA stuff... Uh, I think that it, the one thing that I wanted to add on there was that it stated that this Idaho State Lab had created the DNA profile. You know what? I think actually that comes in a little bit later, but it says here that Idaho State Lab created the DNA profile. And then they sent off a piece of that sample to or a sample of the DNA to the lab in Texas. And so kind of alludes to how where if even if the prosecution were to be forced to give up the genetic tree information and uh, the defense gets it. The only thing that they would want to do with that information is to have it thrown out, which would put them back to square one. So it doesn't make any sense, you know, as far as that goes. Um, let me back this up a little bit. Just that from originating from the biological father of the DNA from the knife sheet. We learned from the Pennsylvania State Police that for four days before his arrest, the FBI had Koberger under surveillance. So for four days before his arrest, when was he arrested? Wasn't he like in, uh, was it December 29th, December 30th, somewhere around there? Yes, sir. So four days before that is in December 16th. Mm -mm. The math ain't mathin'. It's not mathin' up. It ain't mathin' up. So <clears throat> what does this tell you guys? Big Blue? I'm going to say somebody put on there that he was arrested December 30th, so... That would give you the four days before that'd be the twenty-sixth. I mean they, they were they watched them for a while. I guess they could tell they can get the match on the DNA from the trash, probably. Well, they pulled out the DNA on the twenty-seventh. So they were only watching him for a day before they pulled his DNA, which makes sense. Why would you wait? Why would you why would you wait, you know, a significant amount of time? Uh and you do it as soon as you possibly can, right? Try to do it as fast as you can before this guy strikes again. So what yeah. this tells me is that they weren't watching him, they didn't know about him. And everything that we've been saying about how, you know, December 19th, when they got his name, that they weren't looking at him as a suspect. Because if you were looking at this guy as a suspect, this is a guy that you believe had committed a quadruple homicide, you would be following that guy. Yeah, you would consider him a flight risk. <laughs> 100. I mean, the dude took off to Pennsylvania. Yeah, exactly. Not only that, but like, so now that... that it comes to the point to you know the, the the stops the traffic stops weren't you know they weren't planned or anything exactly which we we talked about that we we've alluded that those weren't planned based on the demeanor of the officer that was just both of them just leaning into the car you know uh talking to him very casually you know that's not the way you would approach a quadruple homicide suspect there's yeah. just not the way you would approach that that's that's, that's armed <laughs> at this point you know, that's potentially armed still. 
Right. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Let's continue. At his family home in the Poconos. According to the affidavit, on December 27th, law enforcement seized some household garbage the Koberger family had left outside for collection. They obtained DNA from the trash that they could compare with the sample from the knife sheath. And they got a match, a familial match. Based on the results obtained in this case, we can say that there's a 99.9998% probability that the individual that left their DNA on the trash that was tested is the biological father of the individual that touched the button of the knife sheet. I was told by a source, Koberger's DNA was later taken in jail and found to be a match to the DNA found on the sheath. Again, this is on one of our visits to Moscow. My producer, Timmy, and I retraced the 10-mile route law enforcement says Koberger's phone traveled from Pullman, Washington, where he lived, to King Road, and the longer, out-of-the-way route they say he took back. According to the affidavit, while Koberger's phone was on its way out of Pullman at 2.47 a.m., the phone stopped reporting to the network, indicating it was either turned off or put on airplane mode. A half hour later, security cameras in Moscow picked up a white Elantra, passing the house on King Road three times between 3.20 a.m. and 4.04 a.m. Authorities believe the murders took place between 4 and 4.25 a.m. The Elantra was then seen passing by the house a fourth and final time around 4.20 a.m., heading south out of town. The phone didn't report to the network again until 4.48 a.m., at which point it was on State Highway 95, south of Moscow. At 5.30 a.m., the morning of the murders, Koberger's phone traveled back to Pullman, toward his home. As we were driving, we immediately realized this is a really roundabout way to get from the crime scene back to Pullman. There's a much more direct route between the two towns that would take about 20 minutes. It took us roughly 50 minutes to get from the murder scene back to Brian Koberger's apartment following the cell phone pings mentioned in the affidavit. So we talked about this last time and why we thought that this was important. Brian Koberger um, is a study of criminologists. He wanted to be an intern as a police officer. In his essay, he talked about collecting and analyzing technical data. So he would have understood how he would have been investigated. In the probable cause affidavit, the police state that he exited, that they suspect that he exited Palouse Road, which has a road that goes directly to Moscow, would have been the quickest way to go there, and that they suspect that he did that. Now, first and foremost, I wondered why they even put that into the probable cause affidavit. And I realized that the reason why they put that in there is because that shows us and the jury and the judge and everybody is they would have this is the way they would have investigated this. They would have seen this white Elantra. And if they would have thought that they that this car went to Moscow, they would have assumed he would have taken this trip, which means that they probably looked at camera footage in Moscow at about 440 to about 5, 510. This guy doesn't go back until 536. So the reason why he does this big old loop around is so that he's not back in time to be caught on cameras when police would be looking for him comes back much later. Does that make sense? Is that what you guys are, are understanding from this as well? Yeah, I like to throw off the timing, you know, that and, you know, like, like you said, it was like a, what, like a 25-minute difference, right? Give right. or take. And he went through the whole uh, a different route. 
which he could have just abandoned all the stuff that he had if you know if he could i would all right right no i i yeah 100 100 i mean there's that possibility I, I don't think he he did i mean there's that opportunity right so you have him being seen at 420 but his phone turns on at 448 so it's a 28 minute difference however he's he's only 10 minutes away so there's an 18 minute difference as far as what was he doing could he have gone somewhere to disclose of evidence or dispose of evidence that was very close 100 or maybe perhaps he parked somewhere and waited because he knew that um, when law enforcement go back to look at cameras that they would be expecting this white car to pass by at a certain time so he waited and passed by at a different time completely possible let's see let's continue this of how authorities believe he returned home brian has been linked to an account on one such forum called tapatok where he made dozens of posts the earliest writings we could find deal with a medical condition he says he developed around the age of 14 something called visual snow it's a rare medical condition that causes people to see flickering dots for about 60 percent of patients the disorder comes on suddenly and can have huge implications for quality of life visual snow can also be linked to other symptoms like ringing in the ears anxiety depression trouble sleeping and even dissociative episodes that's when the world around you doesn't feel real there's no known cure for visual snow so many people with the condition are constantly on the hunt for new ways to keep symptoms at bay, sometimes communicating on online message boards to swap tips on what treatments work for them. Brian has been linked to an account on one such forum called Tapatok, where he made dozens of posts recounting his battle with visual snow. In a post from January of 2011, 16-year-old Brian writes, I have had VS since September 21st of 2009. Since then, I have changed, mainly from the anxiety and sense of derealization and hopelessness. The derealization, he describes, is the sensation of feeling detached from your surroundings, like you're in a dream or a fog. In another post, he writes, Being me is this horrible disease that I was given. I think of this as I succumb to sleep, but I see a large intensity of black, yellow, white fuzz. It makes my mind fizzle, and I can barely keep in the bounds of reality. It is as if the ringing in my ears and the fuzz in my vision is simply all of the demons in my head mocking me. I fall asleep, but I wake up quickly, to bloody screams. Is any of this here? Am I brain damaged? No? Then why am I like this? Brian seemed to find a solution that helped deal with his visual snow. A very specific diet that involved cutting out grains, sugars, and yeast. He followed... All right, so here's all that visual snow stuff and how it affected him. These were, these were accounts that were linked to him. Mm -hmm. Now, these accounts and these things happened when he was a teenager, right? So... How do you think that that would, um, should it be used against them today? We'll start off with you, Jaime. Do you think that the information that he put out there as a teenager about the way he was feeling, do you think that corresponds with how he feels today? And is it fair to use that type of information against them? Um, I think so, man. I think the fact that he's saying that he feels detached from reality, you know what I mean? That he, that this is, um, it is feel it's, it seems like it's messing you know with his mental health you know mm -hmm. and he's detaching himself from emotions and you know different kind of things he's not feeling the same way he was before you know uh, i think it could be a possibility they could use that right 100 and yeah it was definitely i know some people are saying that was debunked that's false information it was not um 
here's why I think it's important about it being today is because he's still practicing in um, trying to control the symptoms. The veganism that he has isn't because he has a feeling for animals or or whatever. It's because he's trying to drown or trying to lower the symptoms, not completely cure yourself of symptoms, but lower the symptoms. Now, he's been doing this for several years. Right. My suspicion is that like anything else that you do, you build a tolerance to it and that perhaps he needed to fill that void. Uh, first, it starts off with, all right, he starts eating differently. It starts changing his appearance and his weight. He starts liking that. He starts probably going to the gym, working out, um, you know, replacing not just the, the losing weight by the eating habits, but now you add in the working out. You know, you start building and then you have his complete life turn around, you know, him going and becoming top two students, you know, whatever from the sales, you know, those are all high achievements and high awards. Maybe it's him trying to suppress these urges and these feelings that he has of not having feelings. You get what I'm saying? Now I'm not a doctor and I'm not an attorney and I'm not any of those things. You know what I'm saying? And I know a lot of people are saying debunk, but I don't think it is. I don't think they can. Well, I think there's like three people that are saying debunk, and they might be because they're hoping that it is because they think Coburger is innocent. Well, I I, I don't think they can. It doesn't make you like crazy and want to kill people in any way that condition. And there is, there, maybe he did seek out treatment, which is going to be in his medical records, which, you know, are protected by HIPAA. Right. So maybe, um, Maybe he got better. Maybe he had some medical treatment. Maybe he got some counseling. Maybe there's something out there that he's, he tried. Uh, I mean, it's he, that's possible. But the fact that he's still practicing being a vegan, I mean, it could be just because he likes, you know, he lost weight and he likes to stay fit or whatever. But, you know, to the point where he doesn't want, you know, family, he doesn't want, you know, meat or, or anything that's been cooked on pans that have had meat cooked on them, you know, yeah. things like that. Like he's still to that extent. I That's think that, crazy. yeah, I think that it still bothers him. He still thinks about this disorder. And the people who eat vegan, more power to you. So I ate a vegan pizza one time and I threw up for like the next day and a half. It's stupid vegan pizza. It could <laughs> I mean, have been that of the 20 beers, but I believe I blame the vegan pizza. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Hey, Blue, I know you got to get going. Thank you so much for being on here. We're going to continue while you go do your duties. Thank you, sir. Take care, buddy. Good night. Take care, guys. See you later, Blue. All right, let's continue this. Followed this diet to the letter and excitedly shared his progress on Tapatalk in the hopes of helping others curb their own symptoms. Around this time, those who knew Brian noticed a dramatic change in his appearance. Here's Casey again. In Brian's senior year, he did lose all the weight. He came back and he looked really thin, a lot different. It was kind of surprising for a lot of people. His rapid weight loss could be linked to several things. His new diet or a change in his workout regimen. He did kickboxing. I found out he was doing night runs with an old friend of mine. ABC News spoke with his old boxing coach who remembered a teenage Koberger coming into the gym nearly every day in high school. According to the coach, Koberger's dad brought him in to, quote, get Brian out, get him more social, and get involved with other people. The coach added, Brian's dad was worried his son didn't have a lot of other opportunities to socialize or build self-esteem and strength. Over time, the coach said he saw Koberger gain confidence. 
He said he worked hard to achieve his goals and seemed to feel more accepted at the gym. But around this time, friends of his tell us that Brian also started using heroin. A yearbook photo taken in his sophomore year. So he was dedicated. He talks about losing weight um, and talks about that dedication being a part of why he should be like a security guard, things like that. Um, worked out, was in shape. Do you think he's, you know, all that being said, if he continued that throughout his entire life and, and continued being in shape, uh, mm -hmm. that would allude to me and indicate that he was capable of committing a crime like this against four people, which we also have to remember because a lot of people, they confuse the fact that there was four people and they can, they, I don't know what information they have that they think that the four people that passed were like some sort of trained alert, you know, MMA fighters. They think that it was a fair fight of some sort, but it wasn't. You yeah. had multiple people intoxicated in sleep and you had this, uh, had a person that entered that house with a seven inch bladed knife. Kind of by surprise. Exactly. So it's more know, than enough time. Right. Exactly. I don't know what information people are gasping at or grabbing at where they say, oh, it's not nearly enough time. You know, um, they, they would have fought back. One, we don't have any evidence that there was a, any 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 fight back outside. We, we have evidence of defensive wounds, but nothing that was in the instance of that they were actually fighting back instead of just protecting themselves. So let's see. Um, uh, Budford says. You had a translation of what was said by Adam in the CC. Still, do you have thoughts on the guy in the black against the wall talking to the guy in the white? I'm not sure what you're talking about. Do you know what he's talking about there, Jaime? Um, I do not. Man. I have a translation of what was said by Adam in the CC. I'm assuming this is the... Uh, the CCTV footage where there's Adam in the corner club. I don't have any thoughts about what's in that picture. Uh, it just looks like, to be honest with you, just a bunch of people having a good time. All right, let's continue. And why are comments being deleted is if somebody, uh, oh yeah, CCTV corner, still corner. Yeah, I don't have any thoughts about anybody in there. I feel that everybody that was in there was just having a good time. I don't, you know, I, I think the corner club had came out saying that Brian Coburg had been there and wasn't there that night and that nobody was kicked out. All right, let's continue this. More year of high school shows him doing push-ups with a group of other young men as part of a law enforcement. Let's rewind this a little bit. He saw Koberger gain confidence. He said he worked hard to achieve his goals and seemed to feel more accepted at the gym. But around this time, friends of his tell us that Brian also started using heroin. A yearbook photo taken in his sophomore year of high school shows him doing push-ups with a group of other young men as part of a law enforcement prep class. The caption mentions that he wants to serve in the Army Rangers, a special operations branch of the U.S. military. Koberger graduated from Pleasant Valley High School in 2013, and after working at a couple of customer service jobs, he applied for a security guard position with the school district. According to Fox News, Koberger listed his year of law enforcement training on the application, adding, I box after school every day, and I'm still a runner. I believe dedication and perseverance are the most important skills learned from my activities. I lost 130 pounds at age 15 into 16 whilst attending school at PVHS. I believe this is proof that I had the required dedication to be successful. Koberger was hired by the school district in 2016, where he worked his way up from casual to part-time security guard. In 2018, he transferred to DeSales University a private Catholic university near his parents' house. 
According to the school, he initially studied psychology, then shifted his focus to criminal justice, one of the most popular programs for incoming students. A DeSales promotional video on YouTube describes the program. For example, we have a new track in digital forensics that allows students to prepare for working in a field that actually evaluates cell phones, computers, iPads, and other electronic devices that are used during the commission of a crime. So if he went to DeSales and one of the classes taught him about the forensics and cell phone and how they use it, do you, are you really surprised if they come back and find anything on his computer because he has the knowledge not to put stuff on his computer? No, I wouldn't be surprised at all. I mean, they did um, took the tower and a laptop, right? Right. And, and his phone. And so I don't know if that's going to be, I don't know if it's, you know, like when you get like a crash course, I don't know how that works with criminal justice when he was taken, but like, I'm sure it was like in depth, right? It wasn't just, oh, oh watch out for this stuff. It's really in depth, right? If you're trying to get a PhD out of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, so yeah you're right. So knowing that, he, he he would know better than to use his personal uh, so, phone or laptop to look up stuff or if it was planned, you know what I mean? Right. In fact, there's this moment where a lot of people are, you have a bunch of questions. And that was the moment where he's in Pullman, Washington, and he stops on Nevada Street there. And uh, he's there for like nine minutes now. Right there in that area is like the the WSU buildings. I wouldn't be surprised if he had somewhere there stashed, you know, all the stuff that he did to plan this crime. And he took it with him, you know, because here's the thing. If, if, if what I think is what happened is true, which this the motive was, you know, committing the perfect crime and getting revenge on the area and the law enforcement and all these people, in the area that made him, you know, that brought him down during this time, then um, I would have assumed that he would have prepared for this crime to a T. I mean, he would have had probably covered, you know, his car inside with plastics and stuff like that, which is could be a reason why. There's no evidence or DNA or lack thereof, which is a play on words. Remember, we asked the forensic, our forensic yeah. expert who worked with the defense, and she said that term sounds like reasonable doubt, not so much that there is no DNA in the car. Right? Yeah, yeah that's that's exactly what it is. Just trying to raise doubt yeah, when, so, when the hearing when the trial shows up. Right. So what I'm thinking is maybe perhaps. He went to go pick up all these tools that he used to plan this and he took it with him. And during that 18 minutes or whatever, where this vehicle is, you know, not on the, you know, nowhere to be found or while his phone is off and he's nowhere to be found. Maybe he was dumping not only the knife, but all of the tools that he used to plan this event. And possibly clothes too, right? Yeah. And the clothes, he may have changed the whole nine yards. I mean, there's a whole lot that can happen at that time. Mm -hmm. A whole lot, a whole lot. Let's continue this. While he was at DeSales, Koberger continued working his security job with the Pleasant Valley School District. In 2020, Koberger was awarded his bachelor's degree from DeSales and began pursuing his master's in criminal justice through their online program. Koberger appears to have been a good student and was particularly well-liked by Professor Michelle Bolger, a criminology instructor at DeSales. She did speak to the Daily Mail about her interactions with Koberger, reportedly describing him as brilliant, a great writer, and one of my best students ever. In fact, Koberger is one of only two students she said she ever recommended to a PhD program. However, the professor also acknowledged she didn't know Koberger very well outside of their virtual classroom interactions. She said, he seemed normal to me, but then again, I only knew him from teaching him online. 
So he went through the criminal justice um, part where he got his you know, recommendation for the PhD course uh, while he was doing online courses through 2020. We all know what was happening during 2020. You know, a lot of folks say that uh, being isolated changed them, especially the younger guys, the younger guys and gals, not just guys. Yeah. You think that could have had some sort of effect on him? You know, his course of study and the fact that he was being isolated due to what was going on in the world. I mean, yeah, the, um, especially if you suffer from some sort of, uh, you know, mental health issue, you know, mm-hmm. it's not going to be good to be isolated from everybody else. And, you know, especially during that time that everybody was isolated, um, it wouldn't, it's not going to do wonders for you, you know? Yeah, no, exactly. You're, you're right. It, it's not. And especially like, well, let's, let's listen to it. I want to get into it. I didn't know anything personal about him. Professor Bulger also advised Koberger on his thesis. As part of his research, he created a survey seeking to understand the emotions and psychology involved in committing a crime. He posted a questionnaire on the social media platform Reddit that. Ab- so this is that Reddit platform that was in the um, probable cause affidavit. Uh, his professor said that this was part of his thesis for his master's degree. When do you suppose that would have been in his college career? It's probably towards the latter end, right before he gets his degree, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So if he graduated in May of 2022 or June or whatever, right, then he would have done that thesis right before he left to Pullman. Does that sound accurate? So right before he left to Pullman, he was actively talking to offenders about their crimes and their emotions during the commission of the crime. Do you think that could play a role as to why maybe this crime was committed? Um, it could be. Um, you know, certain people get obsessed with stuff. You know, what I mean, it, some it doesn't take a lot to be, you know, obsessed with a certain thing, either a person or, or even a, you know, a certain case, like especially like serial killers. A lot of people like you know hearing about serial killers. It intrigues them. So, like, it doesn't take a lot to infatuate, you know what I mean? Right. right. And maybe that maybe that's the case. I mean, I don't know. Uh, maybe he was just so deep in, you know, in thoughts about these kind of crimes and, you know, he wanted to see what it was about. That's why he asked these offenders what they thought and what they felt and wanted to find out himself. I think so, too. I think that's highly plausible, my man. Highly plausible. BBC News was able to verify. After months of trying, we were finally able to get an exclusive interview with one of his fellow PhD students. We wanted to shed light on Koberger's time inside the program, a place where he only spent a few short months in the fall of 2022. The fellow PhD student agreed to speak with me on the record, but she didn't want me to include her name or voice in the podcast. It's a small program, and they felt under siege from public interest in the case since Koberger's arrest. Yet, she did have some things she wanted to tell me. Yeah. Angelica, you can ask a thousand people in prison that question. <laughs> I mean, Rex Humerman, the guy, the Long Island guy, architect, high profile architect, well known. You know what he was doing. Aaron Hernandez, football player, multimillionaire, Super Bowl winning champ. Michael Vick. Just Michael Vick. Look at what he did. He was you know, the, the horrible things he did. You know, I mean, all of these people were people that you would have never assumed would have done something. Needless yep. to say is 
unless you know these people personally. And even if you do, because I guarantee you, if you go ask Rex Humerman's family, if they think that he was a Long Island serial killer before his arrest, ask Richard uh, Allen's family what they thought about him prior to his arrest. That's Jared, the subway guy. Exactly. I mean, that caught me off guard. <laughs> right. So just because there's somebody that's out there that's well off or has a bright future or has all these things planned out for them doesn't mean that they're not going to screw it up. People screw up their lives all the time. Henry Ruggs, football player for the Las Vegas Raiders, killed a lady, um, DWI in his Corvette, slammed into a Prius doing 110 miles an hour and she caught on fire. People do things that you have, you would have never guessed. Let's continue. From the beginning, she says, Koberger seemed to have a hard time fitting in. Where his master's professor at DeSales gave him high marks, this fellow PhD student at WSU described Koberger as difficult and unpleasant to work with. She said he was sometimes rude and condescending. She remembers a few times that he became angry over seemingly minor issues, like being docked a point or two in class. On these occasions, she said, Koberger's face would turn bright red, and he clenched his fists until his knuckles turned white. See, these are all things that would not have been noticed during an online course. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, him getting upset about being docked a few points, and those are all things that could have very well happened. But because Koberger was at home and wasn't in the, you know, around other people to have yeah. seen that, you get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So I think that's important. I spoke with a second colleague from the PhD program who corroborated these descriptions of Koberger's behavior. The first PhD student told me that Koberger lacked respect for people's boundaries. In one instance, Koberger apparently developed a crush on another classmate, repeatedly asking her out and staring at her. This allegedly made her so uncomfortable that the other students made a point of never leaving the two of them alone together. According to the PhD student I spoke to, Koberger's fellow PhD students began tracking his behavior that bothered them especially what they saw as disrespect toward female professors. They wrote down how many times he interrupted female professors or skipped their classes. They called it the Brian tally. So I think this is important because very early on in uh, Koberger's teaching assistant career at WSU, uh, he was being looked at and was given like uh, behavioral plans because of his behavior was bad. We wonder what could he have done so early on, you know, in his teaching assistant career that would have gotten such negative heat so fast. The other thing I also want to ask you and say, do you think that this is possible the first time coworkers lived without his parents? Yeah, I think so. I think so too. I think that also might play a role in this later on, that he only lived on his own for a few months. Then, you know, he was online courses. There's a good chance he was living with mom and pops back at home. So just a couple of points that I wanted to bring up. Koberger's classmate told me they thought something was off. As a group, they were raising red flags and telling higher ups. The university can't speak due to privacy concerns, but we know Koberger would later face repercussions. So right there, they're alluding that those repercussions were because of these students coming forward to the school and complaining about Koberger's actions. That's going to be well documented. And those you we were we're probably going to hear from those students come trial time. Very, very obviously. 
In Koberger's job as a teaching assistant, the fellow PhD student we spoke with told us Koberger held his office hours at unusual times, sometimes late into the evening rather than the more typical daytime hours. She began sticking around after some of her students complained that he would make them feel uncomfortable during their meetings. Students alleged Koberger closed the door, which is against protocol, or placed himself between the student and the exit so they felt compelled to stay in his office. Koberger also developed a reputation for being a tough grader, sometimes to the point of frustrating his students. Hayden, the student we spoke to, recalls one incident that seemed to leave everyone involved, even Koberger himself, feeling uneasy. We had a midterm exam that a lot of people thought was graded unfairly. So we as a class had like a day where we went in and we were all essentially allowed to just like debate him about our grades and try and like earn points back. But, you know, it was a thing where he argued back. And so we were sort of in this weird like debate for the whole class, 50 of us against one of him. And he was having to field all these questions. But Brian didn't seem super comfortable. And honestly, none of us were like super comfortable. It was a weird vibe. That was like a turning point, I think. For us, we felt like when we did that, our grades got better. While the undergrad we spoke to wasn't keeping close track of Koberger's behavior, his fellow PhD students were. Remember that Brian tally, where the other students in his cohort documented how often he was late to classes taught by female professors, missed their classes entirely, or interrupted them as they were speaking? Well, according to the Brian tally, the Monday after the murders, Koberger missed class. Boom. Wasn't there the day after the murders. Mm-hmm. Interesting. This is the first time I heard that. I thought late, he was there. Late night activities, maybe. Yeah. A little tired, a little exhausted from going on a couple of trips back and forth in this weird ass, you know, route that he did that's documented yeah. from his from his phone. Phone pings, yeah, exactly. Hmm. Interesting. So didn't show up. Apparently was like, I mean, this 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 isn't used to me, but I think this is a pretty big boom. He wasn't there the day after. Yeah. Let's continue. At the end of the semester, Brian's father flew across the country from Pennsylvania to meet up with his son. The two would drive back to the Poconos together. By December 13th, their drive was underway. They took Brian's white Hyundai Elantra. As they drove through Indiana, a strange thing happened. Brian was pulled over twice within the span of nine minutes. One piece we can make out from the first stop is Brian's dad bragging to one of the police officers who pulled them over about how his son is a teacher at Washington State University. That's true. His son, his dad was bragging about that. You know what that tells me, Jaime? That Brian Koberger was lying to his daddy and his family about what was going on back home or back yeah, at work. The, the, the trouble, not the trouble, but like the incidents that were happening within, within him and the, especially the other uh, uh, teacher, right? Professor. One hundred percent. So like he was probably telling his family, oh, everything's going great. Everything is hunky dory. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, the defense is going to say, well, who's going to tell their parents about all the problems that they have? And I get that. But this is also going to say that Brian Koberger is a liar. And that's what the that's the way the defense is going to try to push this out is that he's a liar. You know what I'm saying? Just really. Nine minutes after the first traffic stop, executed by the local sheriff's department, Koberger was pulled over for tailgating again, this time by the Indiana State Police. He wasn't ticketed either time, and law enforcement sources tell me these were just traffic stops, nothing related to the murder investigation. Although Moscow PD had released the detail about searching for the white Elantra just days before, on December 7th, 
Indian authorities would have no way of knowing if the vehicle they pulled over was under investigation. And sources have long maintained the FBI was not tailing them. Koberger and his dad were still on this road trip December 14th. While I Do you think he told his dad about, you know, you think they talked about the Idaho 4? I'm sure they did. I'm sure, I mean, they, they talked about the other incident, right? Yeah, they, they were talking about the um, about the the SWAT team and the Brent Quebec yeah. incident. So uh, I don't yeah, know why. Well, sure. exactly, I don't know why it wouldn't come up. I mean, it was only on every <laughs> news, uh, in every media, and all the media's. Yeah, one hundred percent, one hundred percent, and YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> and so, all right, let's continue this. I was back in Moscow doing that ride along with Sergeant Sprout, the officer who told me his gut instinct was the suspect was still in the area. Koberger had just left. So we talked about that earlier on, you know, where are they watching him? They thought he was still there. He had just left to the Poconos. So while she was on that ride along, they thought he, they thought the killer was there. That's just another point to me that indicates that you know, they weren't on the Koberger yet. Let's continue this. We're almost done. Koberger and his dad arrived home in Pennsylvania sometime around December 16th. Right after Christmas, after nearly four days of surveillance, at 4.35 in the afternoon on December 29th, law enforcement obtained a search warrant for the Koberger household. Nine hours later, on December 30th, at 1.30 in the morning, police raided the Koberger family home. They apprehended Brian Koberger, thoroughly searched the house, and seized items they believed might be evidence. My law enforcement sources tell me that at the time of the arrest, Koberger was wearing gloves and they believed he'd been sorting trash. They arrested him as he was running down the stairs toward his bedroom in the basement. <laughs> he, was, he was running down the stairs towards the bedroom in his basement with his gloves on. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a weird sight. It's weird, right? To think, you yeah. know, like, like they, he was supposedly shifting through, you know, his... I wonder what he was going for. I wonder what he, what he was trying to do. Maybe he thought it was just a break-in. I, I think it was like a no-knock. They probably just broke in everything boom, and yeah. busted in. So, you know, maybe he just got scared and ran towards his he's, room. But He's like, litter, parents, I'm gone. <laughs> as far as what video is this, this is everything that we've heard up to this point is off of the ABC News um, podcast, the, killing, uh, the King Road Killings. It's five podcasts. They're about 40 minutes each. Um, I went through all of them and just kind of select that cherry picked out the information that we aren't aware of. There's a lot of stuff in there that's already been put out there. A lot of stuff that's in the probable cause affidavit, a lot of stuff that we know. So I just pulled out the stuff that was in this uh, podcast um, that we weren't aware of, that we didn't know about, put it together and put some clips up together and, and put this all, all for this. Yeah. Uh, we have a uh, super chat is about to come in. Let's see. Angel D says with a $10 super chat, do you think the missing interview with Pam they're asking for could be from when they potentially cleared him previously? Maybe he did tell LE he had a white launch. You know, I didn't think about that. Uh, well, <laughs> that's possible. Yeah, it is possible. You know, I, I, I don't know, but that is um, quite possible. Thank you for your I mean, super Even from the beginning, they were saying that they were clearing out people from like real fast, right? Yeah. Yeah. 100%. The, I mean, even Steve Gonzalez said that he thought that they were clearing them out too quick. Mm -hmm. 
Let's see. Though there's been tons of internet and media speculation, in our reporting, we haven't found any link between Koberger and the victims, including on social media. And as Jason Labar reminds us, just because someone is interested in crime doesn't mean they're criminals themselves. There are lots of people who share the same fascination. The knife sheath first went to the Idaho State Crime Lab in Boise, the one I visited a few weeks ago. They were able to extract DNA from the sheath and then sent a sample of the DNA to a lab they contract with in Texas for more sophisticated testing. I'll add to the lab. So that was the uh, that part. We're done with the uh, ABC News aspect of this. But I wanted to add in that, extra, that, that last part because it says there that they were able to create a profile off of the DNA on the sheath. And then they sent a sample of the DNA to the lab in Texas. So one of the things that, I, that we, we've discussed is what is the optimum goal of the defense when it comes to evidence against their client is to have it thrown out and not used against their client. Yep. Right now, that evidence is not used against their client. What the defense is asking for is for that evidence to be used against their client so they can then have it thrown out. Mm -hmm. I don't know if having it thrown out gives an appearance or an illusion of reasonable doubt because that just puts us back to square one because all of that doesn't change the fact that they created a DNA profile off of the DNA that was left on the sheet. And then after the arrest warrant, that they were able to get a buckle swab and check the DNA out of Koberger's um, cheek and match those two things together. Compare, right? Yeah. yeah. So the only thing that I can think of is that the only reason they would want to do that is so they can say that they got something thrown out so that it can create some reasonable doubt amongst the public. That, yep. That's exactly what I was thinking too, man. So. So what do you need one? What do you need one? 100%. All right, let's finish this out. Front end of my uh, mind. We're not 100% sure if the door was unlocked, but there was no damage to anything, and the door was still open um, when we got there. Now, let me rewind this. So uh, what Chief Fry here was saying was referencing the uh, the back door. He stated the sliding glass door, that there was no damage, didn't seem like there was any forced entry, and that the glass sliding glass door was still open when they got there. Mm -hmm. That leads me to believe that those stools that were put back there were put there by the police. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, he said also that there was no damage. Does that mean that the locking mechanism was working? Or, or does he mean that there was no, like, fourth century, just that? That's a good question. That's a very excellent question. I'm not sure. I mean, I would assume that if there was no, unless the, the uh, surviving roommates uh, confirmed that it was already broken. Hmm. I think that would probably be the only way. But then again, like, why would they secure the scene with the stools? Besides the point that that's evidence and they shouldn't have done that. Yeah. Why secure the scene with anything other than the locking mechanism on the door? So you're onto something there. I think that maybe perhaps it was broken, but it was broken previously. Right, let's continue this. Percent sure if the door was unlocked, but there was no damage to anything and the door was still open um, when we got there. And my first question, if, yeah. you don't, if you'd like me to read. No, I, I think I, I think I haven't. Um, you know, in these cases, we take the totality of the things that we see, and they're, and they're very dynamic, right? And they're very big, and there's a lot of information. And we try to take that. Dude, I'll take this bet 100%. You want to get 10K rich, $10,000 more richer? <laughs> I, 
y'all both want to bet 10k he was working undercover drag test <laughs> oh my god i needed a laugh damn, damn ready dude you want we'll raise that man let's put another zero behind that i'm up for it that information and some of what we can't share with you correct um, but we try to take that information we try to make the best educated decision we can we uh, review that as a team with our um, detectives along with our prosecutors along with the university and we try to make that best um, decision on that so we um, at, at that time believe that um, you know there was no uh, a threat and our, our goal is to provide safety for this community so in that aspect right there, they're talking about um, the the threat, right? Why they said that there was not a threat to anybody. And as you can see, he's kind of walking it back right there. This was one of the early press conferences. Now, in this clip here, <clears throat> this happened just a couple of days ago. Um, Truth and Transparency had on Enan Harsh. And in this clip here, Lena was trying to... Um, understand where the baller car was from Enan Harsh. Um, they were talking about a G-Wagon and all this other stuff. From what I took from this um, interview was that Lena was kind of thinking that it was the uh, SUV vehicle that is seen in the Linda Lane footage that is leave that leaves after 423. Mm -hmm. Remember, there's a car that turns on and then takes mm -hmm. off after the murders. It, it sounded like she was alluding to that being the baller vehicle that Enan Harsh was referencing. He states here that, no, that wasn't the case, that the Waller vehicle was parked closer towards the victim's house in front, you know, on that Queen Road, King Road area. And so it's kind of funny. Like, if you look at Lena's like, wait, what? <laughs> like, her expression's kind of funny. Uh, but let's check this out. Let's hear what he has to say. Wait, but there isn't, wait, wait, wait. There isn't a So that's this where I saw the Elantra, that hill right there. I'm pretty sure that's where I saw the Elantra that night. Um... You saw an Elantra on this hill? Look, look at how surprised Lena looks, though. <laughs> you saw an Elantra on this hill? Uh, <laughs> let's continue. Yeah. Well, I mean, every once in a while. Um, okay. And I only, I only recognize it because, you know, my ex my ex drove an Elantra. So, you know, I'd see an Elantra there, and I was like, that's interesting. But So his ex drove an Elantra. So he knew what an Elantra was. Because he thought... He thought <laughs> he thought that the Elantra that was parked back there may have been his ex, but he'd seen a white Elantra parked on Ooh. numerous occasions back here. Ooh. Interesting. Let's continue. Yeah. Also, okay, let me the, ask you uh, this: right here at the top of the hill, there is like a. Let me show you something. I know which one you're talking about. It's in a different video. Um. So this is August 27th, 2022. So let's rewind that. Let's listen to exactly what Mr. Uh, Inan Harsh had to say again. Is it, wait, wait. There isn't a... So that's this where is, I saw the Elantra, that hill right there. I'm pretty sure that's where I saw the Elantra that night. Um, you saw an Elantra on this hill? Yeah. Well, I mean, every once in a while. Um, okay. And I only, I only recognize it because, you know, my ex, my ex drove an Elantra, so... You know, I'd see an Elantra there, and I was like, that's interesting. But also, okay, let me the, ask uh, you this. Right here at the top of the hill, there is like a, let me show you something. You know, it's funny. Like, I don't know. I know that Lena, her position on this, I, I think she leans more towards that Koberger could be innocent. I don't want to speak for her. 
So I, I, I'm not sure. Those in the live chat could, uh, you know, let me know or not. But I don't know what Bella's um, point of view is either. Mm-hmm. Um, but when he says, ask, you know, why the Elantra there, look at her face. There isn't a So story. that's this where is- I saw the Elantra, that hill right there. I'm pretty sure that's where I saw the Elantra that night. Um, you saw an Elantra on this hill? Yeah. Well, I mean, every once in a while. Um, okay. And I only, I only recognize it because, you know, my ex, my ex drove an Elantra. So She's laughing you know, I'd see an Elantra there and I was like, that's so interesting. I think, but also the, uh, I think she picked up on it. She she laughed about it. So I wonder if she's like, oh, so there was an Elantra that was parked back there a couple of times. We know from the probable cause affidavit that there was a white, uh, that they accused Brian Koberger of going there 12 different times and they have um, the cast, you know, deal to put him there. Let's, uh, let's pull this thing back up. So where he's saying that he saw that white Elantra park is right here along these cars. In fact, when is this from? That looks like a white Elantra right there. <laughs> you see it? Yeah, it's I mean, I Obviously, I can't tell if that is or not. But he said that it was in this area where this white vehicle would be parked at. And it would be looking directly into the backside of the victim's house. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting stuff. Well, that's everything, man. Uh, it was quite a bit. I mean, we went double than we usually do. Uh, oh, yeah. I didn't even notice it flew by so quick. <laughs> it was pretty quick. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about, you know, everything in a nutshell? How does this, how does, how do you feel about the case now that we've heard this podcast and these new, this new information that we haven't heard <clears throat> ourselves? I- I feel that the DNA itself is more solid now, you know, especially mm-hmm. with everything, all the evidence that they have, uh, mm-hmm. including like, you know, the interviewers, I mean, interview from his, maybe his friends and is that the blanket, <laughs> uh, you know, past, uh, you know, classmates or whatever. Yeah. And from his mood swings to even, you know, the, the visual snow things could have affected his mental state too as well. Uh, I know they're going to use all this and it's it going to be part of a, you know, the trial. Yeah. They're trying 100%. to try to convict. 100%. Also guys, if you guys weren't aware, we also are having a raffle. Um, I put this out in the last show. We are um, basically long story short, I have a little Frenchie. Me and my wife have, he ended up having IVDD, which is a, a basically his disc burst he ended up losing um the ability to move his rear legs required surgery and rehab and so it's been extensive extensive and so to you know help with the financial stress what we're doing is we're raffling off this uh quilt it is a four by four or four by three quilt i have it upside down um, with a bunch of dogs on it and it's rescue it's high quality my mother-in-law made it it's handmade quilt see it. Uh, basically, the way you enter is um, $5 entry fee through Cash App. Our Cash App is Cash App Sign Drunk Turkey Show. Make sure you put your shipping information in the description. There was a couple of people who sent us uh, entry, $5 entries, but didn't put their, their shipping info in the description. Uh, if you did that, just take a screenshot 
of your of your um of your cash app order the five dollars that you paid and email it to us with your shipping address so that way we can add you in there thank you art reese for your 199 i appreciate it great show your analysis was spot on thank you i appreciate that uh <laughs> something handmade and priced yes 100 and it's cool because if you look at it there's these little bones that are like sewn into it it's it's really awesome my uh, my mother-in-law makes a ton of quilts in fact i have one that i have on my couch that i'm always under and you know all the time i love them quality is great we're going to be doing the raffle on august 25th you don't have to be present on the live um again this is to to help out my dog so i would appreciate it if you don't want if, if you don't want to be a part of the uh the raffle and you just want to donate just send in to the cash app and in the description uh, yeah. don't put anything in and we'll know where you're at it's a, it's a great it's a real nice blanket it's so nice that i'm gonna you know ask her if she can make me some boxers <laughs> i will i will We're, she she's making a few of them for everybody it's supposed to have our faces on them so. oh, nice <laughs> I'll, I'll have i'll get your face on my boxers there it is everybody that'd be weird but everybody would have be all <laughs> eyes on your boxers man <laughs> all righty well uh, thank you, thank you all for the uh, the the great words. You know, our pup's doing well. He actually has another rehab next week, so he'll be going back into the aqua tank and doing his walk. Oh yeah, and we also got stickers. Remember, we got stickers. I'm getting pictures. I gotta get. I gotta get with Blue or Blue has to send me some pictures. We're gonna be selling those stickers in the same fashion through Cash App. Um, you know, it would be the same thing. Just send the cash app with your shipping information and then we'll send you out a sticker. Um, we're working out the details still and um, I need to get the pictures of the stickers, but that should be coming out pretty soon. But with that being said, y'all, I hope y'all have a great night. Thank y'all. We're out of here. Any last words? Bye. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>